it's Maria. Welcome to First Up. It's Ra Mere. That's Friday, the 15th of July. Call Nathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, Sri Lanka's President Rajapaksa sends his resignation letter from the safety of a whole other country. A new study finds Māori and Pacific patients could be missing out on critical heart treatment because diagnosis methods were calibrated for white Americans. The government de- denies playing politics by failing to introduce tougher mask restrictions. We gauge reaction on the street and also we hear from an emergency doctor who says, hey, we've dropped the ball. We had a simple, cheap, easy thing that we could use to prevent COVID spread and that was face masks and we've really failed. Welcome to First Up, I'm Nathan Rarere and we begin this morning with news from Sri Lanka where a letter of resignation from President Gotabaya Rajapaksa has been delivered to the country's Attorney General. Earlier, Mr Rajapaksa had arrived in Singapore after fleeing to the Maldives. Nice. Uh, Mass protests have forced the President's hand after Sri Lanka's economy collapsed under the mismanagement of successive governments. The BBC's Anbarasan Itarajan reports. In the last few minutes, we understand uh, from the office of uh, Speaker of Parliament here in Sri Lanka that an email has come uh, from uh, President Gotabaya Rajapaksha uh, explaining his decision to resign uh, from his post. But again, this is an email, so it needs to be verified and checked whether it came actually from Mr. Rajapaksha. And even if it is verified, then it has to go through a legal process like whether the Attorney General will accept an email resignation. So these are the issues surrounding the latest development. And the Speaker's office told us that now they are going through this verification process. And in the meantime, there are also reports that the signed letter of resignation from Mr. Rajapaksha will be you know, brought, will be sent through the High Commissioner of uh, Sri Lanka in Singapore. So these are various reports and uh, we cannot um, you know, confirm immediately when this is going to come, whether it has been handed over to the High Commissioner there. But this is also, again, if it is true, then it removes a lot of bottlenecks about choosing the next president. Because once Mr. Rajapaksha resigns, then the Prime Minister Ranil Vikramasinghe assumes the post of uh, interim president. And then the parliament will choose the next president by MPs will choose uh, already. They were supposed to meet on Friday to start the procedure because of the delay in getting this resignation letter. Now the meeting has been postponed. But it all remains to be seen, even if that happens, whether Mr. Vikramasinghe will be accepted by the protesters who have been here for the last three months. Anbarasan Itarajan reporting there from Sri Lanka. Uh, we go to the United States now. Boy, this is better than, better than Netflix. Uh, the January 6 hearings continue. Uh, also, President Biden makes controversial visit to the Middle East, and we'll cover both of those with uh, Bevan Hurley, who is in New York City. Kia ora, how are you? Kia ora, Nathan. Doing well, thank you. So um, now, January 6 committee, I'd like to start there because I do love this. So they've referred allegations of witness tampering to the FBI. Tell me about this. Yeah, these hearings have, um, you know, really played out, like you say, like like a Netflix drama. And and every one has been punctuated by uh, quite a stunning revelation um, towards the end. And 
Tuesday's hearing was no different. Um, we heard from committee member Liz Cheney that Donald Trump had attempted to contact a former White House staffer who had been privately speaking with the pa panel. Um, Ms. Cheney said that they took any effort to influence witness testimony very seriously, and they had referred the um, breach to the Justice Department. Um, we also heard during Tuesday's hearing um, an inside account of a completely mad meeting between Trump and his inner circle in December 2020. It was so unhinged that several of the participants almost came to physical blows. And it was at this meeting that um, National Security Advisor, sorry, former National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn suggested that Trump should invoke martial law. Um, another advisor present suggested he should issue an executive order to seize voting machines. And we also learned um, during this hearing that um, a draft tweet uh, that was obtained from the National Archives uh, and written and um, viewed by Trump explicitly called on um, his followers to march to the Capitol. Uh, the tweet wasn't actually sent out, but it shows you know, the level of intent um, that Trump had. Um, so the final hearing, we believe, is going to be happening next Thursday in prime time at eight o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And we know that the uh, committee is going to examine Donald Trump's, as they call it, supreme dereliction of duty during more than three hours of the invasion. Uh, we also learned this morning, Nathan, that um, Trump is looking to announce plans to run in the 2024 presidential election in the autumn, which um, some Republicans fear could really upend their prospects in the uh, midterm elections. Well, it feels like it's just going to split them in half, does it Does it not? Um, I imagine if you're a Democrat, you probably really are hoping that he does uh, to try and get them both going. Let's speak uh, of the current uh, Democrat president, uh, President Biden. He's in the Middle East. He's going to meet with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who's um, the leader there of Saudi Arabia. Controversial? Very controversial. Um, as a candidate, Biden pledged to make MBS uh, an international pariah over the killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. But events um, have really forced his hand, and he's heading to Riyadh on Friday on the latest stop of his Middle East tour, where he will indeed meet with um, the Saudi ruler. Um, Biden will be hoping that his decision to re-engage re with the kingdom will bring uh, US gas prices down and further isolate Russia for its illegal invasion of Ukraine. But he's been getting a lot of flack for it here. Um, the Washington Post, who Mr. Khashoggi worked for, stated that the meeting erodes the US's moral authority and will also breed anti-American resentment. Um, so already uh, in Israel, Mr. Biden has met with several leaders um, where he reiterated uh, that the US would not allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon and that he believed diplomacy remained the best avenue to keeping Iran from obtaining one. In an interview with Israeli media, he said that he would use force as a last resort to keep uh, from obtaining a nuclear weapon, but did not spell out uh, what he meant by that. Yeah. Um, another big story uh, is this story about Elon Musk wanting to buy Twitter and then not trying to pull out. Now Twitter suing Elon and the lawyers have done great work because what they're using Musk tweeting out a poop emoji and it's court filing. Tell me about this. Yeah, I imagine this is the first for the Delaware Chancery Court, Nathan. Um, <laughs> in, in a lawsuit that Twitter filed on Tuesday, they cited several posts made by Mr. Musk as evidence that he had disparaged the company, which would be a violation of the contracts um, that he agreed to when he when he said he would buy it for $44 billion. And they specifically included Musk's May 16 tweet 
of a smiling poop emoji as evidence that he had, you know, publicly disparaged the, the, the company. Um, Musk's tweet came in response to a post from Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal, who had sent several tweets explaining the company's procedures to combat spam and fake accounts. And of course, last week, Musk said he was terminating the buyout over concerns over those very fake accounts. And um, he responded to the lawsuit with a uh, tweet explaining that the use of the colourful emoji was shorthand for BS. So um, plenty more um, BS to come out of that one, I imagine. Uh, I'd love to hear that. Someone earnestly describing what that... <laughs> the digital poop, sir, uh, means uh, BS is what we do. Thank you very much, Beaman Hurley, uh, with all the great news. Well, always interesting news you had in New York City. Oh, okay. Oh. 13 past 5, you are listening to First Up here on RNZ National. Marijuana, snake venom and a plan to export hyena testicles. Nope, not a music video, uh, not even uh, First Up plans for Friday, but part of uh, the election campaign in Kenya. And for that and other news from Africa, it's Nabil Ahmed. Morena Nabil, how are you? Fine, thank you, Nathan. How are you? Good. Tell us about this. Spy stories are, are always interesting. In Gambia, though, can you tell us about these spies and also will they be put to death? Yes, uh, we are understanding that a court in uh, the Gambia has sentenced five former uh, spies of the uh, former leader Yahya Jame to death. Now, the high court pronounced the sentence uh, of the uh, main spies uh, just after they found them guilty of murdering one uh, man who was uh, a main figure in the opposition uh, party in 2016. Now, that opposition figure called uh, Solo Sandeg, uh, he uh, led a demonstration against the former leader Yahya Jame in 2016, and then um, he was actually arrested. And later, after two days, he died in custody, and it was revealed that he, had, he died because he was beaten and tortured. And um, just uh, now, after six years, uh, we understand that um, five people uh, were actually convicted of his murder and um, they have been sentenced to death, Nathan. Oh, horrible news. Um, also, quite shocking to see, and I know we have a lot of uh, former uh, South African residents who live here in New Zealand now, the spate of bar shootings in South Africa. What's the latest? Yes, um, we understand that investigations are still ongoing to unravel how uh, some armed men just went into a bar and just opened fire just like that uh, in two separate bars. And as a result, 19 people have died. Uh, we understand that the first happened in Soweto, where 15 people were killed um, during uh, in the night when uh, these assailants, just, uh, they were in a mini uh, taxi and they just went into the bar, just shot people randomly in the bar and 15 people died as a result. And in a separate incident in the eastern city, uh, we also heard that four people were killed in similar incidents and others were also wounded uh, during the shootout. And investigations are still ongoing because people, I mean, the police have not been able to pinpoint those who were uh, responsible for this attack. Can you tell us about uh, this guy, George uh, Wajakoya? Hopefully I've said his name right there. Yeah. <laughs> he sounds like an interesting guy. So he wants to, as he said, I've got a vision for Kenya. We're going to become a major exporter of marijuana and also hyena testicles. Yes, Nathan. This is quite interesting because um, Wajakoya is part of four 
I mean, candidates that are vying for the presidency in Kenya and the elections will be held next month. And he is talking big about the fact that um, if marijuana is legalized in the country, the country can really benefit a lot by exporting uh, the marijuana to other countries. And he has pledged to um, spearhead that cause. And he's been saying that um, when the country is able to export marijuana, for instance, it should be able to make a lot of revenue uh, in order not to, I mean, depend on foreign donors and all that. And he was projecting that um, the country could rake in some $76 billion annually by importing uh, marijuana, I mean, by exporting marijuana, and he wants to be given the mandate. But then people are laughing off this because they feel it's not something that's quite feasible at the moment. And um, there are those who are also saying that it doesn't even stand a chance of winning the presidency because a poll has revealed that he only gets some 4% of the vote if election is to be held uh, at, the, at the moment. So um, it's quite like, it seems like a joke, but uh, he takes himself seriously and he believes um, if marijuana is legalized in Kenya, um, the country should be able to benefit a lot by exporting it. What, what are people supposed to do with hyena testicles? Do we eat them? What do you... <laughs> well, well, he's also talking about the fact that some money would be, I mean, gotten from it because he says um, there are some medicines that are being used for that as well. Okay, right. Uh, finally, I know this one always gets you. Tell us the latest football news there. Which teams have qualified for the Women's World Cup, Nabil? Yes, uh, we understand that Morocco and Zambia have qualified for the Women's World Cup. And you know it's going to happen uh, in both... Uh, Australia and New Zealand, and I know you are also excited about it, hosting uh, this particular Women's World Cup next year. And four African uh, women, uh, I mean, countries have actually qualified for the World Cup. That's Morocco, uh, Zambia, uh, Botswana, and then uh, Senegal. And it's all excitement here. Ghana, unfortunately, my country has not been able to qualify for the World Cup. But for Zambia, this will be their first time participating in the Women's World Cup, and it's a lot of excitement for them at the moment, having been able to qualify through the, I mean, Women African Cup uh, of Nations Championship and then now progressing to the uh, Women's World Cup. Nabil Ahmed, thank you very much for your time. Yes, uh, the news out of Africa there uh, with our man Nabil. It's 19 past five. Uh, you're listening to First Up. Uh, come for the news, stay for the hyena testicles. Uh, coming up, research shows that Māori and Pacifica patients can be missing out on critical treatment due to diagnosis methods being calibrated all wrong. Uh, and we're just minutes away from finding out this week's fruit of the week. they are standing in the Big ones, small ones, some to the weekend fresh produce markets now. Joining me from Topo Nui Atea is our Minister of Fruit and Veggies, Glenn Forsyth. What in a Glenn? What in a Glenn? I'm very good. Uh, you got some? Uh, got any good advice here from the folks at Five Plus a Day? 
Although you always come in with some, some good stuff. Dr. Dane Rua and Five Plus Today came out with a timely reminder this month that fruit is nature's perfect snack, which mostly come in their own wrappings, such as green and gold kiwi fruit. So eating in season fruit through winter is the best way to get value and high nutrition. Go for two to three servings of fruit each day. Dr. Rua also suggests we use fresh herbs daily. We often season too much with salt and sugar. You can even add fresh lemon juice to meals or adding mint to topped oranges is a great combo or add tamarillo, thyme and rosemary to a casserole. All these winter fruits help with recovery, immunity, energy levels and mental well-being. The level of fructose leads people to think snacking on fruit is wrong, but this is misleading. Fructose is different to other sugars you find in cakes, soft drinks and sweets. So fruit sugar releases more slowly into the body, minimises sugar spikes, provides energy and lessens the negative effects that you get from erratic blood sugar levels. And he finishes by saying the health benefits of fresh fruit are huge and it pays to avoid fruit juices because of their high concentrations and overloading your body. So all great stuff there from Dr. Dane Rua. All right, tell me about uh, what is happening in the world of vegetables. Yeah, it looks like KFC New Zealand is joining KFC Aussie 2 now, swapping lettuce for cabbage and some burgers. Did you hear Mm. that? I did did hear that. I don't know how I feel about it. I might have to go and visit them four or five times just to see how I feel about it. Yeah, well, that's okay. I mean, good reason to sidestep high price high-fate processed fast food. However, to the markets, and not surprising, lettuce is short, and so is spinach. Cabbage is also short, but at least its quality is fine. Other greens that are still hanging in there are celery, silver beet, leeks, broccoli, and cauliflower. Great news. It is a little frustrating that we pay more money for smaller-sized produce in winter, but that is how demand over supply works in our industry. Hothouse crops are very dear, and tomatoes the latest one to hit over the $10 a kilo mark. We have Australian tomatoes arriving into New Zealand now as well. Mm. Here are are some great lines in good supply seen at the markets, though. White button mushrooms, Brussels sprouts and yams. It was fantastic listening to Marcus from Halfords talking new season yams on RNZ's Lately program on Tuesday night's Eat of the Week. You've got to check out his favourite dish, yam, kumara and ginger soup. It's on the halfords.co.nz website and it contains no less than several powerhouse produce items in just that one soup alone. Beautiful. Tell me, apples, they're everywhere. Oh, wow, it's amazing just how plentiful New Zealand apples are this season. Certainly up the ante of these in the household, if you can, a different variety too, if you wish, for every member of the family. We also have lots of New Zealand green kiwi fruit to munch our way through this season. And another line in good supply this weekend is either New Zealand or Australian naval oranges. There are also end-of-season mandarins and um, nashi pears still available. Uh, we move to Fruit of the Week, Nathan. But yes, a little uh, bit, hi, yeah. hi, Glenn, what is your Fruit of the Week? It's grapefruit. Yeah, I'm a little nervous to be, to be honest. I'm not sure for its popularity, but first fresh in Gisborne grow three varieties starting now, and they take us right through to the new year. Their sales manager, Ian, he enjoys making grapefruit marmalade for a change, and sometimes he includes a citrus fruit into a smoothie mix. Another quick recipe, cut the grapefruit in half, sprinkle with raw, raw sugar mixed with ground ginger and cinnamon, then grilled for about 7 to 10 minutes until the sugar has melted and starts to caramelise. Serve warm with a dollop of Greek yoghurt and a handful of your favourite granola. So he's asked you asked to try that too. Beautiful. Glenn, thank you very much for your time, sir. Remember, check your medications around your grapefruit. I think that's always the caveat with it. It did seem that the secret to making grapefruit nice is making it not taste like grapefruit. But anyway, there it is. Glenn Forsyth. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day we've all agreed to call July the 15th. 
Happy birthday. Well, he can't hear us anymore. Uh, but uh, Rembrandt van Rijn, uh, a man who painted the colour black apparently better than anyone else in that era. Uh, Rembrandt van Rijn was born on this day in the Netherlands in 1606. We just know him as Rembrandt. How about that? Let's go through uh, celebrity birthdays. French hip-hop star Poofy Duvet turns 19 today. Former New Zealand breaker Ben Pepper. 47. Uh, Brian Austin Green, who was uh, the annoying guy on uh, Beverly Hills 90210, he's 49 today. Forrest Whitaker is 61. The former governor of Minnesota, who was also a WWF wrestling star and commentator, who was also a, a military veteran, Jesse Ventura, turned 72 years old today. And if you love Linda Ronstadt, and we do, uh, 76. There you go. Uh, Arts and Culture Desk uh, says this. In 1988, the Christmas movie Die Hard uh, came out today. Uh, Also, 1964, I was always so jealous of this. My cousins used to get to go on this one. The Universal Studios Tram Tour was interesting. Remember that? It always came out with home movies. Like, is that really a shark? Wow. And on this day in 2006, a small website called Twitter first came. Nowadays, it's mainly trolls, bots, comedians trying to sound like mega brains, uh, journalists posting links to their articles or saying, hey guys, some personal news, and all it really is is just them going to work for the opposition. And that's what Twitter is today, and I think it's worth billions of dollars unless you back out of the deal. And that is the day that we like to call the 15th of July. It's business, it's business time. That's what you're trying to say, you're trying to say, let's get down to business, it's business time. Joining us now from our business team is Giles Beckford. Kia ora, Giles. Kia ora to you, Nathan. A big morning for marijuana exports here on First Up. We've found out that Kenya apparently quite keen to get into the game. What's this about New Zealand cannabis companies? Well, finally, they're starting to make some traction. There have been uh, aspirations expressed officially, I might add, by uh, government ministers that the cannabis or medicinal cannabis uh, industry could in time... Uh, get to equal the size of the wine industry as an export. Well, wine is a $2 billion export earner for us. Uh, Latest news is a small company called Canna South has just inked a deal with a German company uh, for supplying them with cannabis flour, uh, which uh, they'll be using through a variety of products. Uh, It will be worth... 12 to 15 million dollars a year for them uh, and that gives you some sort of scope uh, idea of the scope of, you know, of the earning potential of the industry only a few weeks ago we had another company Ruhr Bioscience also selling its product into Germany it would seem that Germany seems to be the centre of uh, you know, or should we say German pharmaceutical companies are eager to get their hands on New Zealand uh, products um, Interesting that it's still taking a time for companies to get themselves established. The regulatory uh, environment here in New Zealand, uh, should we say, is difficult. It takes time to get the nod from the bureaucrats on this. Uh, some people have even suggested the bureaucrats have got in the way. And of course, the long been complaints that the supply to the New Zealand market is constrained. So we're just starting to see, should we say, uh, some growth uh, in the young industry. Uh, the suggestion is that there'll be more to come. And there's quite a few um, companies out there that are growing uh, with plans to export. So 
it could be a good earner for the country in due course. Yes, indeed. I think it will be. It could be a massive market. Thank you very much, Giles Beckford there. Uh, also, um, we'll be having a look too today. Might actually mention it on Morning Report as well at 10 to 7, uh, asking the question, does the gender of your KiwiSaver manager matter? Right, so listen out for that one. Let's have a look at your money report right now. Uh, this is how your New Zealand dollar is being traded around the world. Currently at 61.07 US cents, 90.8 Australian cents, 60.99 Euro cents, 51.72 British pence, uh, 4.12 yuan, 84.9 Japanese yen, 35.6 Russian rubles, and 253.71 Nigerian naira. Well, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began, thousands of civilians have died and millions have fled their homes. Russians, too, are also suffering the consequences of the war, especially the families of soldiers who have been sent to fight. The BBC's Steve Rosenberg has talked with the mother of one missing soldier. Russia's invasion has brought untold pain to Ukraine. But if you travel across Russia, you'll discover that here, too, there are families that are suffering the consequences This mother has asked us to hide her identity. Valia, not her real name, fears she may get into trouble for speaking out. But she wants to tell us about her son, a Russian soldier who was fighting in Ukraine. Valia last heard from him more than four and a half months ago. I don't believe the government anymore. I wrote to his unit. I wrote to the military district office. I wrote to the defence ministry. And then I wrote to them all again. No one has given me the basic information where, when and how my son disappeared. In official letters, Valia was told that her son had been taking part in the special military operation and that he's missing. On TV, they say that everything's fine, we're winning. But our lads are being killed. If our country had been attacked like this, we would also be defending ourselves like they are. We'd defend ourselves and we'd be angry too. I realise now that Ukrainian mothers are the same as us. Their sons are being killed. They're searching for their children. I don't know what this was all for. You'd have to ask the government. Ask President Putin and he'll tell you he ordered troops into Ukraine to defend the motherland. He wants Russians to rally around the flag. But Valya is in touch with soldiers' mothers across Russia and she says that many of the mothers blame the Kremlin for what is happening. They hate the government, they hate Putin, they all want this war to end. If the mothers of all the soldiers who are fighting there and the ones who've lost sons, if they all rose up, can you imagine how big that army would be? And they will. Their nerves will snap. Stop. Stop all this. Stop it and protect our children. Since she spoke to us, Valia has received confirmation that her son is dead. One more Russian soldier who won't be coming home. That was BBC's Steve Rosenberg.
It's always a special time. We get to say kia ora to Joe Porter. Kia ora, man. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I've, just before we get started on sports news, which amazing facts this week? This is the most amazing vision of the week involving the word billion. Are you ready? Okay. So which one of these do you like? Is it the fact that I saw light beams that were sent 13 billion years ago from the James Webb telescope picture? Okay, or is it that LeBron James, who is a billionaire, thinks that stadium food is too expensive and they had footage of him going to the basketball games in Las Vegas, he brings his own food in, a sn- in Ziploc bags because he, he likes to buy them from the petrol station because they're cheaper. Well, the second one's more believable, isn't it? Let's be honest. <laughs> Let's bizarre. be honest. It's, it's like hard. You're, a, you're a billionaire. He's like, I know, but popcorn's like eight dollars. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I can. I can imagine it. I can imagine it. He seems like a bit of a, a bit of a stingy dude, to be perfectly fair. He's protecting those millions. He's a smart businessman, and he doesn't yeah. like overpaying for things. I, yeah, isn't true. that how that's you stay rich? I don't know. Something yeah, that's like how that. he's got a billion. Probably wants a tax cut too. <laughs> Tell me, man. Um, obviously, uh, I, th- I know the uh, the Open Championship is on with the golf, but the rugby this week is interesting. How key for it do you think for the All Black coach's job is it that they win this weekend? Well, I mean, look, I, I don't think I've ever been in this position as a rugby journalist before where there's been this much debate over whether or not the All Blacks should, should sack their coach sort of not quite mid or just past midway through his term. Um, it's quite incredible, unprecedented really, that we've had that many people clamouring for Ian Foster to be removed and replaced by any number of candidates before the World Cup, only 14 months to go. So this is, this is incredibly crucial, this game. It's, it's important they win, it's important they win well. Otherwise, you know, the knives are already out, but they will be really, really, really sharpened to a point if they lose this weekend. I mean, Ian Foster is under incredible pressure. He'll say it's the same as every week. You have to Mm. win every game as an All Blacks coach. But there's no doubt you've lost three of your last four tests. You're the first coach ever to have lost to Argentina. You're the first coach ever to have lost to Ireland and New Zealand. You're a coach that holds records that others would not want. You've got the worst winning record in the professional era as an All Blacks coach, now slipping under 70%. Some of that bolstered, of course, by wins of a Fiji, Tonga, the USA and the likes. So... A lot, an enormous amount of pressure on coach Ian Foster and this team because if they don't win this weekend and they're the first team to lose to Ireland in a series, I think New Zealand rugby could be forced to take a look or at least pretend they're taking a look at Ian Foster's position ahead of the World Cup because the public, rugby fans, will just be baying for blood. Also too, Joe, that they've got a, a new sponsor, Ultrad, mm. who have paid a load of money. We just saw the big Silver Lake thing. That's a load of money. Those people paid for excellence. You know, that, that's Absolutely. what big money says. And I think anyone that's ever worked anywhere with a sales department knows the sales department come over as soon as they're not getting exactly what they need. And, you know, look, the, the All Blacks are not the best team in the world. They paid for the best rugby team in the world. And now they're the fourth best rugby team in the world, the lowest of all time in the world rankings for the All Blacks. Now, number four, Ireland, if they win this weekend, go to the top. And a sort of strange amount of irony there. So, look, uh, you're right. They, the sponsors will not be happy. They paid for the best team in the world, the, the unbeatable All Blacks brand, the aura that goes with it. Well, that aura is pretty thin at the moment. And mm. Coach Ian Foster, a lot of people would say, has a lot to do with that. Yeah, Joe, thank you very much for your time, sir. Those of you that said, what about the Open Championship? It's, uh, who is this, Cameron Young, I think, is leading at the moment. The uh, Cameron Young uh, leading, and they're playing on the old course. We are, we, boy, we're running. It's as if we're trying to get to a, a plane on time. And Nathan Raderia with First Up here in RNZ National. You're going to hear from a Northland doctor who has great concerns about these uh, new measures to fight COVID. They're not going far enough. And he's got a very, he's got a solution we can all get involved with. <laughs> Thank you.
The professionals of the RNZ ship uh, morning report. They are here after six with a quick preview of what's happening today. It is Susie Ferguson. Kia ora, Susie. Kia ora, how are you? Oh, I'm pretty good, you know. It's nearly, oh, yeah? nearly, nearly start of Friday for me, but you've still oh. got this heavy show to bring us. What do you got happening? <laughs> we do, yeah. <laughs> a bit of criticism coming today from doctors. This is around the new COVID measures, including the free masks and free rats uh, that was talked about yesterday. Also, of course, easier access to some of the antivirals. Doctors not sure that this is going to do much to ease the strain that they are under. We'll be hearing from them on the programme. Also looking ahead to weekend of rugby. All Blacks attempting to avoid a historic series loss to Ireland this weekend. That's not I words I thought I was going to be saying any time. No. There you go. Um, also, uh, a Vincent van Gogh self-portrait has been discovered in Edinburgh oh. on the back of another painting. It's been found by an x-ray, so we'll be hearing from the gallery. No, it was painted over that one, eh? Yeah, who is it? I don't know. Some guy with a beard. Get over Yeah, there. he's wearing a hat, you know. <laughs> Cheers, thank you very much. Kia ora. Uh, Susie Ferguson, of course, Susie and Corin bring you a morning report up after six. A new study shows Māori and Pacifica patients can be missing out on critical heart treatment because of a diagnosis method that is not fit for purpose. The University of Otago paper says that the normal range used to gauge heart abnormalities has been developed for white Americans and when you apply it to Māori and Pacific people this uh, could result in incorrect diagnosis and potentially delay treatment. I spoke with one of the study's authors, Professor Gillian Wiley. We found that the way we measure heart size in patients that we are considering might have heart disease and need treatment works very well in the non-Māori, non-Pacific population which it was derived from originally in America but when we apply it to Māori and Pacific patients in New Zealand, we find that actually it will make us delay the diagnosis of heart disease in those patients. And in fact, it'll make it harder for them to get treatment and evidence-based care based on that. How does this work out then, and you have a look and you see this, how did you figure out the methods are not fit for purpose? So when you go and have an ultrasound scan of your heart, the sonographer who does it will take a lot of measurements. And of course, if somebody is, you know, five foot five, their heart will be smaller than somebody who's six foot tall, because obviously your heart is proportional to the rest of your body and how much blood flow it needs. And so in the past, what's been recommended and the international guidelines tell us that we should basically divide every measurement we do by a measure called body surface area, which is fundamentally the area of the skin. Mm. But what it does is it assumes an underlying body composition. So lots of evidence, 20, 20 plus years of evidence has shown us that if you take two people who are the same height and weight, who, and one who's Māori and one who's non-Māori, the Māori patient will have a lot more muscle mass in their body than the non-Māori patient. And because we know muscle mass is what drives your heart size, they should have bigger hearts. That, that makes sense. But when you divide it by the body surface area, it assumes that all of that is fat as opposed to muscle. Right. And so it adds an error in, which it just makes it very difficult to detect heart disease. Does that mean then uh, that these patients that have been uh, diagnosed off this old formula, does it mean that they were being prescribed not enough medicines to help with their hearts prior, possibly. Uh, prior to this? We, I mean, obviously we don't know totally, right? Yeah. But possibly. And often people talk about Māori patients and Pacific patients presenting late for surgery and other treatments. And I think this is an example of a failure of the health system to respond to their needs. 
So it's not that they're presenting late, it's just that we don't, haven't used the right measurements to detect the disease early enough. Hmm. What about, I, I guess another thing to ask is uh, men and, and women, are we finding differences there? Like are there discrepancies there for, for either of the sexes? Yes, and that, that's the part that really did surprise me from this research. I was fairly confident they would find the difference between Māori Pacific and non-Māori and non-Pacific. But what we found is this is even more exaggerated in women. And in fact, Māori women are the most affected by this bias, if you will, and that's again linked to body composition. And it's not too surprising. A lot of things in medicine have been derived in men and often white American men. That's where the money is for research and always has been. But we need to do these things now. Increasingly, we realise we have to redo these things in women and we have to redo these analyses in um, Māori and Pacific people. So, I mean, I suppose, look, no one's um, saying that this was done intentionally, but unintentionally, the way that it's been drawn up and delivered and that the system is discriminating uh, against non-white patients. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I'm, this is my profession, so I'm a, as bad as anyone. I, for many years, before I started to think about this, which was about 15 to 20 years ago, I was the same as everyone. I followed the international guidelines. It seemed like best practice. Yeah. And individually, none of us are racist. Of course we don't. We all care about our patients. We want to do the best for the patient in front of us. But systematically, it is, it is racist. Once you understand that, once you see it, there's no coming back from it, if that makes sense. You just can't, you can't unsee it anymore once, once you realise this is just blatant systemic racism, really. So from what you've seen here uh, about your study that you've done and what we've been talking about, what do you see as the solution as we move forward? Well, I think we have to stop doing the things that we know are harmful, and there'll be more things. We just don't have the evidence. But once once we realise that they could be potentially harmful, we need to stop doing those, and we need to find better ways to approach these patients. And what I'm hopeful is that the cardiac community in New Zealand will come together through the Cardiac Society of Australia and New Zealand and come up with some guidelines that will change change our approach. And we need to take a really stronger approach in cardiology so that we recognise the higher risk, we recognise what we're doing inadvertently to enhance that risk and stop those things. That's the University of Otago's Professor Gillian Wally. Uh, We head towards 6 o'clock and you would have heard that yesterday. Masks and rapid antigen tests will be free to the public and COVID patients will have greater access to antiviral COVID treatments in the latest move to try to slow the soaring case of uh, COVID numbers. However, the government stopped short of introducing further mask mandates and COVID-19 Response Minister Dr Aisha Viral says a move to the red traffic light setting isn't on the cards anytime soon. Now, this is despite many in the health sector calling for tougher mask rules, including epidemiologist Michael Baker, who accused the government of putting politics ahead of science. Latest government modelling has found that if we don't act to reduce transmission, this is all of us, we could see up to 1,200 hospitalisations a day with up to 21,000 daily cases. We sent reporter Leonard Powell out to the Auckland CBD to see what the public made of the announcement. And Leonard began by asking people if they think New Zealand should move back to alert level red. 
I reckon stay where we are. I mean, the rest of the world is pretty free right now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. If it's going to protect our most vulnerable to the disease, then yes. I just think, like, we should be doing what it takes to protect those that this can make very sick or kill, and I think that's terrible, so we need to do more. Well, actually, I think we started to give up when we moved away from the, the four-level system. So, you know, I, I think we should be at level three. The government has kind of given up on this, and it's serious. I think the sooner we can get to an economic state where we are all actively economically involved, we have international export import, we have travel, the better for the long term. I think the current situation, our future generations are going to pay for this, you know, the, the money we have to lend to in order to keep everyone at home and I think it's time to move on. It's probably getting a bit extreme but it would be good to get people to wear masks uh, a lot more than they are. I don't know why they thought well, like opening secure. the borders was a good idea, but as soon as they opened the borders, more cases started coming in. Maybe for the like, go to the people and so people aren't dying, yeah. like, move back a little levels would be good. Because people aren't going to wear their masks anyway, so Yeah, and this level safer. isn't really doing anything. People don't really wear them. I think stay in orange. Lena then asked whether people thought masks should be mandatory indoors and free to access. I do. It's kind of a no-brainer. I think the more choice people have, the more freedom we have. Freedom equals choice, so I think it's about freedom. Well, I don't know about free, but definitely in certain settings, anywhere indoors, uh, public spaces, schools, early childhood education, absolutely. At the moment, I think the education sector is like a super spreader system for New Zealand, and, and you know we've got to actually deal with that. I'd be very happy if I didn't have to wear a mask anymore. Right. We've just come back from overseas, no restrictions there. People are responsible enough to deal with it the way that they see fit. I think people should be allowed to make their own decision. I don't want to be restricted to wearing a mask anymore. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I work just over in the library there. We have masks that are free for people who don't have them to come in and use. So yeah, I would, I definitely, they should be. So it's the thoughts of the people. I spoke with someone on the front lines of the country's battle with COVID-19. Listen carefully to this. This is Dr. Gary Payenda, uh, who is an emergency medical specialist from Whangarei Hospital. It comes back to this idea that we've got something that works for all variants of COVID in all people, and that's masks. Highly, highly effective. I've been using an N95 now for months and months, working around COVID and influenza all day, every day, you know, working full shifts, seeing lots and lots of infection and not getting sick. And and that's due to good mask use. And we were not getting the message out there to people. Well, the message is really being undermined by all the misinformation and disinformation on social media. But really what we need is good universal masking. We need two-way masking. If both parties, both people are masked, we wouldn't be having this conversation about COVID level surging. The reality is we we never should have let kids go back to school unprotected, let workers go back into crowded, densely packed indoor rooms, breathing and rebreathing each other's air. We never should have allowed that to happen. We know that we don't have good ventilation or good filtration. We had a simple, cheap, easy thing that we could use to prevent COVID spread, and that was face masks. And we've really failed at it. And that's a shame. What what about, um, because I hear about the CO2 monitors and stuff. Do you you think, I mean, they they sound like a a, a great thing to have. First off, do you think that they work and they would be useful? And number two, if you can't afford it, is everyone wearing a mask, you know, does it do anywhere near as well? 
to take your first question, CO2 monitors, they're really useful for showing you areas of high risk. So I've got my own CO2 monitor. A decent one will cost between three and four hundred dollars. And when you walk into a room within a minute, you have an understanding of how much of other people's breath you're breathing in, how much CO2 is in there. I think schools, workplaces absolutely need to be to be using CO2 monitors to get a better appreciation of the risk that their their people are are, uh, facing. I mean, it's incredible that, again, we've forced people to be indoors, closely packed, crowded with poor ventilation, and we haven't given them the means to help themselves. And I think CO2 detectors are, are one thing. Certainly free masks are another. There shouldn't have to be a cost pressure to trying to protect yourself from a, a pandemic. And then other things like the flu vaccine, um, which is it's not COVID, but it's still related. We're seeing unbelievable amounts of flu infections in the emergency department right now. It's, it's shocking. I think flu-related hospitalizations are, are at the highest they've ever been. And the same way you prevent flu is the way you can prevent COVID with good mask use, ventilation, and vaccination. Yeah. And so we've been falling down on all on all of those accounts. We we don't do a good job of improving ventilation or filtration with HEPA filters. We don't have CO2 monitoring, so we're flying blind and don't even know what our risk spots are. And certainly we have allowed a total degradation of the public health measures that matter the most, which are face masks and boosters. You know, with, with the boosters there, yeah, because I know that, you know, we, we felt like we got to a very high marker there with, with our vaccinations, and I saw those. How important then is it to get to get the booster? Yeah, so 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 Nathan, that, that's exactly what we were told, right? 95% of us are vaccinated, quote, fully vaccinated, and that just meant two shots. Mm. But what that, we sort of stopped at that point. And, and what we failed to really tell people was that you need current vaccination in order to be uh, protected. You need to be up to date on your COVID booster just the same way that you need a yearly flu vaccine. And by saying people were fully vaccinated when really they only had the first two, and that might have been over a year ago, that was doing people a disservice. And you could see the result of it, really low rates of COVID boosters. I think the the last estimate I saw was something like one million eligible New Zealanders haven't had their booster yet. And those are people that are going to get hospitalized and some of whom are going to have serious infections, critical infections or death. And that's preventable. Getting the booster prevents 90% of hospitalizations and deaths. And just just to touch on something else, can you get the flu and COVID at the same time? I mean, what would that do to someone? Yeah, so I was talking, I think, with your producers about just my last shift and the unbelievable amount of influenza A cases I was seeing, just patient after patient, but also still some COVID cases rolling through and some COVID reinfections rolling through. And then one unfortunate child with both influenza and COVID. And uh, yeah, you've got to feel sorry for um, for anyone in that boat. But how you prevent one is how you prevent the other. Good mask use, vaccination. This isn't rocket science we're talking about here. This is These are pretty simple uh, respiratory infections. They're airborne. They're spread from 
person to person via breath. It's not about hand washing. It's not about social distancing or wearing face shields. I still see some people doing that. It's about wearing a mask when you're indoors. And we missed a big chance. It, it, we had the chance to require good mask use indoors in workplaces and schools, and we dropped the ball. We didn't require it, and now we're having to pay for it. I mean, if, if nothing else, we should ha see employers strongly requiring their employees to wear masks. We should see them providing masks to their employees and expecting both customers and employees to wear them if nothing else, out of just financial interest. The, the amount of missed shifts in the workplace is just extraordinary over the past couple of weeks. I think I was reading in the Herald that something like uh, 200 healthcare workers called in sick on one single day at, at a large hospital. That's not wise and it's not sustainable. And when you've got something that would have kept those people healthy and working, boosters and masks, and you're not doing it, it, it just, it boggles my mind. I, I don't understand what I'm seeing. And it's really unfortunate. Yeah. So there it is. Uh, do you want them both at the same time? Because it can happen. Get your masks on. It's a really easy thing to do. Get your masks on, please. Uh, because it's coming this way, and this is what has happened around the world in the middle of winters. That's when the spikes happen. Um, so please, for that, it's the least you can do. Uh, for you, not just, even just for yourself, for everybody. Right? Things that. Um... Nathan, I worry about the Kenyans wanting to export marijuana and hyena testicles. New Zealand's hyena testicle producers are the best in the world. The government needs to protect them. We also need to bring in cheap overseas labour to help with the hyena testicle harvest, as though all they will shrivel on the vine. So there we go. Thank you too. We've had a gosh, we've had a very active texter this morning who's just turned the racism up to eleven and been texting in. So kia ora to you. Um, and uh, it's always wonderful to speak to a citizen of Aotearoa. Uh, well, uh, look, you can get in touch with First Up anytime you like, as he enthusiastically has been. Uh, Morning Report is next with Susie and Corinne. Remember, too, that you can download First Up, the podcast, and listen to the show anytime you like. Nick Truebridge will be back with First Up in your ears on Monday.